I got the memo. But out of respect for my sponsor and the old timers that were here, when I got here, I begrudgingly put a tie on. That's what I've been taught. My name's Bob Darrow. I'm an alcoholic. I uh, want to see if I can clear up a little 11-step phobia this morning. Uh, I've discovered over the years and uh, throughout Alcoholics Anonymous that two of the most confusing steps are 4 and 11. And because they don't match our preconceived notions of what they should say. And egocentric people like me, don't want to follow directions that I think my ideas are superior to. So, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what the book says, and as opposed to other various things. Uh, I want to start off with a little quieting exercise. I'm just going to do a short one, because uh, if, you, if you're a novice to this, your head may get very, very loud in the silence. Um, and that's okay. Just let the thoughts pass. Um, don't imagine yourself in a subway platform and trains are going by. You don't have to get on every train. Just let them go by and you will hear the conductor will have a chime when it's time for your train. So let's just get quiet for a little bit. And one of the ex dozens of exercises you can do during this, and one of them that I like a lot, is to focus slowly on my breathing and breathe in the cool, clear, clean grace of God and breathe out the angst and conflict of self. Breathe in the cool, clear grace of God and breathe out the angst of self. And let's, let's come back, we'll see you guys back here in a, in a few minutes. Bob, I'm an alcoholic. That was a little short thing. Yeah. If he persisted this uh, at that kind of quiet time, something that's happened for me, is ha it happens for a lot of us, is that you start to understand that you are not the chatter in your head and you are not your thoughts, that what you really are is the, li is the listener. You're the one that hears it. You're the one that it scares you're the one that it motivates. You're the one that it tries to dominate and control, but it's not you. Uh, I had a hard time with, with step 11 for a long time here uh, because of my preconceived notions. When, when I was a, a kid growing up, as in my teenage years and early 20s, I went to a lot of meditation class. I was, a, I, I was in TM. I was in Divine Light Mission for a while. I, I went to a lot of different yoga things uh, because it was hip. And we didn't do it uh, to, get, to get closer to God or to, to be more useful and closer to others. We did it unrealized to spiritually grandize ourselves above everyone else. I can remember going to uh, parties and... Uh, clubs and things and meeting someone and, and, and uh, it was common conversation that, do you meditate? And if they said no, you just go <sighs> and walk away in, in a state of spiritual smug superiority. <clears throat> and so uh, be, being the egomaniac with the inferiority complex when I get sober, uh, by nature, uh, step 11 actually was the only step that seemed attractive to me. And for those reasons, not because I wanted to be more useful, uh, not because I, I, I wanted to uh, grow closer to God, but I wanted to be the guy that could go to meetings and everyone would say, I touched the hem of his garment. <laughs> 
And it was all self-grandizement. And that was my, now, I, believe me, I, at the time I'm getting into it, I don't know that that's the hidden motive. One of the greatest tricks my ego has ever done is to convince me it doesn't exist when it's actually a driving force often in my life. And, um, so I, I, I started, I wanted to do this meditation stuff, and I turned to the big book to see uh, what to do. To see, because somebody said, I heard someone say, well, directions for all the steps are in the book. So I turned to the big book. And the bottom of page 85 starts this section on step 11. And the reason you know that is it says in italics, step 11. Um, it's for those smart guys like me. And it, it goes on to, to talk about what setting us up for what it's going to do. And it, it says... It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions on step 11, on prayer and meditation. And then the first thing, the, first, the next paragraph, it says, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves? What should have been discussed with another person at once? Was I kind and loving towards all? And on and on, and I remember reading this and thinking, that's not right. That's not step 11. That's, that's step 10. Maybe it's a misprint. Maybe that paragraph should have been in the previous page. And I, I went on and I read all the way to the end of the chapter, and there's no, there's no meditation exercises here. There's no mantras. There's no breathing. There's no... Nothing that matches my preconceived notion of what step 11 should say. I did find a couple prayers. You know, we ask God to divorce our thinking from self-pity, dishonest, self-seeking motives. We ask especially for freedom from self-will, you know, inspiration. There's a few prayers, but nothing that looks to me like meditation. So I did what smart guys do. I don't follow directions that I don't agree with or don't match my ideas. And consequently, I never followed the directions of the book for two decades in sobriety. And that's not that I didn't do a lot of things. We, oh, I, I pursued so many things. I went back... Um, I went back to some of the breathing exercises. I, I did the Course in Miracles. All good stuff. I did... Uh, Explored a couple of churches in town, or Church of Religious Science, Unity, good stuff, all good stuff. The church of my childhood, I, I was amazed how much they had changed. Jesus, they were unbelievable. Um, I, I tried the rosary, a little too tedious for me. I, um, I, did, I found a meditation that I've been using for 30 years, I guess. It's, I am the place where God shines through. Him and I are one, not two. I need not worry, fret, or plan. He wants me where and as I am. And if I could be relaxed and free, he would carry out his plan through me. Use that. Prayer of St. Francis, use that to this day. Uh, I like the version, I found the, the other the version that's different from the one in the Step 11 and the 12 Steps of the Whole Traditions, the one that uses starts out with make me an instrument rather than a channel. For some reason I like that better. Uh, use that, still use that to this day sometimes. Um, did a lot of things. Um, and I had a guy with double-digit sobriety that I sponsor. I was, I was probably 20 years sober, I think. I'm chronologically a little challenged when I look back, but I guess I was around 20 years sober. And a guy that was sober a long time that I sponsored came to me, and he wanted specific direction on what to do in the morning, step 11. Well, the problem that I have is I don't, I don't have anything that's definitive. I mean, I don't have, I have a whole bunch of experiences, and it's all good. Matter of fact, the book says it's good. It says, be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. So it's all good in addition to, but I'm using it all in substitution for. And don't know that. 
And so I don't have one thing, and I didn't want to give him ten things. And uh, so I said to him what they teach you in uh, secret sponsor school. <clears throat> in secret sponsor school, they, they tell you if you have a sponsee who asks you uh, for direction on something and you don't have a clue and you got nothing, you tell them either one of two things. Either say, well, just pray about it. If your sponsor ever says, just pray about it, what he's really saying is, I don't have nothing here, I've got nothing. Or, or B <clears throat> is just uh, do what it says in the book. Well, that's what I said to him. I said, just do what it says in the book. And this guy goes to page 86 and 87 and literally starts doing what it says in the book. When he retires at night, he constructively reviews his day. He starts looking at where he's deviated from that the new basis of our life, which is in the decision in step three. And, uh, and then on arising, he uh, starts the prayers and the contemplations that it talks about, thinking about the 24 hours ahead. We, he starts doing that. And in no time at all, he seemed to be doing better than I was, which I don't really like that much. And I, uh, so, <clears throat> so I thought, uh, you know, maybe I should do this. And I started doing it. And um, one of the great... Uh, promises that in our literature of step 11 is emotional balance. And the emotional balance comes from uh, a surrender that we are trying to maintain where I'm not running the show. All conflict, it seems, in my life comes from a selfish, self-centered disposition in trying to play God. And trying to control, and you know, a whole thing, judge, control, opinions, etc., etc. And so uh, I started doing this, and I, I discovered <clears throat> that the goal, what it was doing, it was aligning me to my purpose. All the other types of meditation I've ever done in my life are very useful to serve self, for me to become more comfortable. But what it suggests in AA is, is not that, it, even though that's a byproduct of it. It's designed for me to be more useful and to align myself more with God's will and my primary purpose, which is not me. It's helping others. And so uh, I started to do this, and I started to get a, a little more balanced inside myself, and I started to be clearer. And, and, and I think being clear of all of me is what makes me ultimately the most useful in sponsoring people. And, and to, it, act, it, it makes the access of the internal small voice, the intuition, the whatever you want to call it, clearer. When I'm, when I'm not... It, it's the, the, great, you know, the, the great dilemma with the alcoholic mind that I have is that when I need God the most is when I'm the most blocked. It's because there's so, I go inside me to find God at those times, and I just find a whole bunch of me just chattering at me crazy. Um, so to clear me of me uh, so that I can, I can access this thing. And I, I started doing this, and I, uh, I discovered around that same time a little passage in step 11 in the 12 steps and 12 traditions where Wilson talks about why uh, this self-examination is actually a part of step 11. It's not, this is not step 10 and mistakenly put on the wrong page. It's actually purposefully a part of step 11. Wilson says that uh, self-examination, meditation, and prayer, this is step 11 and 12 by 12, when taken separately can bring about much benefit and relief, but when they're logically related and interwoven, it will create an unshakable foundation for life. You know, taken separately, they do bring relief, but I don't want, I don't need relief. I'm a relief junkie. I've spent my whole life seeking relief because I'm self-centered guys like me. That's what we're, we're obsessed with, how I feel. And this is not about relief. This is about freedom. Freedom from the bondage of self so that I can be more useful. When I, when I said to, when I, when I formed the, the, base, the new basis of my life in that third step, and I said to God, God, I offer 
myself to you for you to build with me and do with me as you will. Please relieve me of this bondage of self. And take away these difficulties for one reason, one reason only, so that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, thy way of life. What I'm really saying is I want to try to uh, release, surrender my life, make it none of my business, my future, my growth, my finances, my relationships. It's not my bit. Hands off. And I can't do that because I'm so... My default position is me. Right? I, you know, even It's always been that way. I look back at my childhood, the only thing I remember with any clarity is me. I mean, you know, I'm just, I've been that way all my life. I mean... Uh, so that's my default position, and, and you're asking me to take a new default position, which is you and God. Um, and you're asking me to install that, and I can't do that unless God does something. and He has to relieve me somewhat, at least, of this bondage of self. Because I am shackled in a hostage to my own obsessive self-concern and self-involvement. So I'm asking you to do that and do it for one. And if you'll do that, take away these difficulties with self. And, there, and, they, and this is this difficulties with self is something I'm going to search for the rest of my sobriety in step 10 on the moment when I, when I watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear. When I, at the night, when I retire at night, when I try to catch the things that I, that I rolled over during the day because I'm too full of myself or I'm too busy or I'm too important to stop, to pause when agitated. I just roll over it, and then I try to catch it at night. And so um, I, start, I start doing this, uh, this thing, this structured framing of my day, when I, what I do at night and what I do in the morning. And, um, I, I'm starting, it's starting to work. It's starting to catch on. And <clears throat> those questions at night, uh, I think that there, it's set up, if you've ever been to Hong Kong or New York City or any city with a, a predominance of buildings that are over 80 stories high, you will often see something very unusual in those cities. You'll see construction going on on the outside of the building. They might re be replacing facades, they might re be replacing windows. And when they do that, what they do is underneath where they're working, they put a, a, a net. And they put the net there because if, they, if, a, if a construction worker drops a hammer from the 80th story, it's a missile by the time it hits the ground. I mean, it'll kill somebody. And then you'll notice on the ground there's two tiers of scaffoldings with more nets because they know that it's possible to get through the first net. And they want to make sure nobody gets hurt and killed. And, and I, this is, Wilson is brilliant because he knows, he knows me. I've never met him, but he knows me. He knows that I get big, a big life sober. And I get such a big life that when, when things, when I'm agitated, when I'm um, upset, when I'm disturbed at all, uh, instead of pausing like I'm instructed to do, I often will roll over because I'm anxious to get to the next thing that I need to do. And, and if you do that uh, and you never check that, what happens is it just builds up. It's like, it's like sweeping stuff under the rug and eventually you'll have uh, something you can trip on. And so uh, at night I try to catch the things that I was too wrapped up in myself and my life and my agendas and my... I, like, I love the term in the... In chapter five, our little plans and designs I, I, that I miss, and so that I can uh, get right. And the questions are, are very, uh, very piercing at times. When I ask my, you know, I look back over my day, where was I resentful? Um, I, I have a tendency to sweep resentments under the rug behind uh, ego righteousness. I'm, I don't really have a resentment. You really are an asshole. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like 
It, I mean, anyone would, anyone would think that about you, you know, right? And so, but it's a resentment, right? It's a judgment, and resentments are judgments, and they're ego-driven opinions uh, that I often create uh, on spiritual bad hair days to try to level the playing field, right? So where was I resentful? Where, where was I uh, selfish? I, I can't imagine a day uh, in my life where I wouldn't have some self-interest, some selfishness. Where, where was I dishonest? Where did I shade reality? Where did I not tell you everything that you should know? Where have I withheld information in a business deal or, um, or just in, in telling you a story about something because I'm afraid of what you'll think. And, and I, I've discovered over the years that as a, I'm not a, I've, I've lied a lot in my life, but I've never lied because I'm a liar. I always lie because I'm afraid. I'm scared of what you'll think of me. I'm scared of confrontation. I'm scared of rejection. I'm, I'm scared of a lot of things. And, and that's what fuels and drives all, every, every dishonesty I've ever had in my life. And it's all symptomatic of once, ag of, of once again falling back in deeply into the bondage of self. Where was I afraid? Fear, I, I, I'm afraid of being afraid. And so I don't, I, I, I have this ability to live with a level of neurosis and imagine that it's normal, that is beyond, it's not normal. Right? Is, every, everybody wakes up in the morning anxious and apprehensive and afraid, don't they? No. Well, they must. You ever have those mornings where you just wake up, you don't know why you're afraid. But you have this, it's, it's a feeling, I heard it described once in AA, it's a feeling like something, something bad's going to happen today. I don't know what, but I better be on high alert all day. And I heard a guy in AA call, he referred to it as a, fe a, a feeling of impending doom. That there's nothing in particularly wrong, I just imagine that there's going to be. And so you, if you're on high alert all day, uh, don't be surprised if you're not like a bad luck magnet that day. So, where was I afraid? And do, I, do I own apology? Uh, I, I sometimes will have to call my sponsor about this. Because I hide, in the 12 Steps, 12 Traditions, it, it says that we're masters of hiding um, one thing behind another, one, a bad motive behind a good one, uh, and, and I'm very, and my ego is very devious and very clever, and, and and I will I will owe someone an apology, but I will stare so blatantly at how they're wrong that it overshadows that anything I did. So I don't really owe them. I mean, look what they did for God's sakes. Right? Have I kept something to myself which should have been discussed with another person at once? I, I encourage um, I encourage my sponsees to do this and I do this with my sponsor. If I've got something that's causing me a, a angst and a, it's problematic within me, I, I have to call him and talk about it. Uh, and I went through a phase in, in sobriety and my first sponsor was a wonderful man, but he did not demand a lot of accountability like my sponsor I've had in the last few years, last many years. Uh, so I went through a phase where I never, I didn't call him when I was in a bad spot. I waited till I fought my way through it, and then I called him and told him what I did just in case he ever needed that information. Uh, which puts me in the, in the ranks of the unsponsorable, right, uh, basically. Uh, so I encouraged the guys. I said, yeah, yeah, you could probably get through this on your own. Yeah, yeah. But there's more humility in the transparency. 
And there's more humility in being open to a direction, whether you take it or not, to be open to it. To, um, to avail yourself of your sponsor's direction. So, should I have discussed with someone at once? Uh, if it's real embarrassing at once, it's like maybe a month. Uh, and this question is, I, is, to me, is the premier question. Was I kind and loving towards all? I really wish they would drop that word all off of there. <laughs> All's a lot. I mean, I'm kind and loving to the people that are kind and loving to me. I'm kind and loving to the people that deserve it. But let's face it, there's people out there that don't deserve it. And uh, Wilson's talking about agape love. He's talking about God's love. He's talking about... Um, Love and service without discernment or opinion. When I heard a, one of the, a lady speaker, one of my favorite women speakers, say something that was really uh, very simple and very profound. She said, in her 40 years of sobriety, the difference is that when she dislikes someone, they don't, they never know it. And it's okay to have those feelings, but. I still, it's, what's important is my actions. That can, can I be kind and loving towards the people that I don't agree with? Can I be kind and loving towards all? There's, there's been a lot of times in my sobriety where I've missed, uh, I've missed really great opportunities to be of service because of my own prejudices and my own opinions. Uh, the times I've been in a meeting and some guy Will, will share something that is just, I think, is ludicrous. I think it's stupid. I mean, it's, it's not even AA. What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Now, I won't say, I've learned restraint of tongue and pen, so I don't have to say anything. I don't give him any unsolicited advice or say anything to him because I've learned not to do that. But I'm not kind and loving either. I'll just give him a wide berth. Never say nothing to him. Give him a wide berth. Leave the meeting. What I just left was an opportunity because if I was awake, awake and other-centered enough to, to put myself in his shoes and ask myself, where would I be at? Where, where would I be at spiritually, emotionally, mentally if, if I was sharing that in a meeting? What would be going, what would have to be going on inside of me? And then I can maybe wake up to, oh, this guy needs a friend. This guy doesn't need a lecture. This guy needs a friend. This guy needs someone to come up to him and talk, tell him about themselves and the days that they've had that weren't that great. And I just, I just missed an opportunity to be helpful to one of God's kids because of my opinion. I think, I think I've often thought that you could measure my distance from surrender, my distance from carrying out the decision in step three by the amount of opinions in my life amount of judgments. My God, if I could be if I could live the tenth tradition and have no opinion on outside issues, only have experience and know that my experience is possibly even biased, but it is my experience. But no opinion, no judgment on you, what you're doing, on life, on politics. I I I had to stop Look, I had to stop looking at Facebook the last couple months. It was just, it was like an opinion fest on there. I mean, it was just like, it was crazy. Uh, people, you know, asserting, and it's all, what, what, what generates my opinions? I don't know about you, but it's my ego. My ego is what pushes them out there. So if I could be kind and loving towards all, then I, I would be possibly in that state that it talks about in the 10 step promises a state of neutrality safe and protected if you're if i'm surrendered and if i'm opinionless or at the very least if i'm willing to not act on my opinions and not engage in them that i'm in i'm in a state of neutrality because new, if you put your car in neutral you can grab the engine all you want you're not going anywhere so life can spin around me and if I'm in a place of neutrality, I don't have it. I don't engage with it. It's it's okay. 
Now when you say something to me, you, uh, you can come up to me and say, you know, you're very self-centered and arrogant. And go, well, yeah, you're probably right. I, I am at times, yeah. I don't have to engage in a conflict. There's no defensiveness. There's no, there's just is. Tough, tough, tough stuff, tough stuff. Am I kind and loving towards all? I miss, I miss more than I catch, I think, when it comes to that. How many times have I been somewhere and someone needed help and I'm too busy to stop and help them? Maybe someone with a flat tire on the side of the road or uh, just a couple, I, God, I did it, I just a, a couple months ago, I, I missed a hundred of these opportunities. I caught one. It really made me feel good. I was at the grocery store and there was some, uh, I just missed one the other night because I was too busy because there was a guy in an electric cart that needed some help and I, I let the, the guy at the grocery store help him rather than helping myself. But a couple months ago, there was a, a little old lady there and she would, Having, she had a bunch of bags, and I just I went and helped her put them in her car. I felt really good about that. Now, how many of those opportunities do I miss, or opportunities to be kind and loving? Because, and why do I miss them? Because I'm full of myself. Um, doesn't make me a bad guy. It makes me alcoholic. That's the de seems to be the default position. What could I have done better? Because you're going to get a do-over. The world of the spirit's full of do-overs, isn't it? It's it's a, there's so much mercy in this universe. How many times do you see do you see men and women who will admittedly, because of their drunkenness or their angst, will tell you how they were horrible, abusive parents? And then at ten ten years of sobriety, you watch what the kind of grandparents they become spectacular grandparents. It's their do-over. You screwed up your first marriage and you were horrible and you, and you just you cringed to think how selfish you were, how terrible you were. What happens? You get a do-over. You get another opportunity to be a little better. Right? We see this in sponsorship all the time. When I first started sponsoring people 37 and a half years ago, I, I had, no, I had no idea what I was doing. I, there was a, there's a gal, Minnie, who, in, here in town, and Minnie and I, for a period of a year or two, we went on a lot of 12-step calls, and we did everything wrong. I remember one time, uh, Minnie's keeping this woman who called central office hostage in the living room, and she's looking, and I'm in the bathroom pouring out her pills into the toilet. I mean... What a horrible thing to do, to, you know? That person will probably never come to AA because AA is the place where they throw your crap away, you know? I mean, right? But we didn't know what we were doing. We were, we were driven by ego and ignorance. Yeah. Are we thinking of, our, of what we could do for others or what we could pack into the stream of life, but we must be careful not to drift into worry remorse or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness. This self-examination is we, we look, but we don't stare. There, there's a, a thing that's happened. This happened both back in the early 80s, and I see it happening again today, where people, they're, they're not big on amends or 12-step work or helping others or service commitments, but they're big on inventory. They want to inventory, and then re-inventory, and re-inventory. It's... Uh, um, one of the guys I sponsor here calls them scribblers uh, because they, they don't want to do the follow through but they want to just like study themselves over and over again and I understand that because the ego will tell me that it will find power in knowledge the power to feel good, the power to validate yourself, the power to change your life but in, in truth in my experience is that there there is no power and knowledge but there is one who has all power but there is no power in knowledge if knowledge has been anything in my life and, and believe me I've been a knowledge seeker that's why I became a counselor at one time that's why I've read all the books I read if knowledge has been anything it's been fodder for my ego to grandize myself and puff myself up into 
separate and above rather than one with. And Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to create unity, one with, not one above, one with. Uh, my grand sponsor, Chamberlain Chuck, used to say that there was one problem and it contains all problems, and that was conscious and unconscious separation between me and you and me and God. And in our book, it, it talks about the root of that is selfishness and self-centeredness. The problem has always been there's too much of me between me and you, and there's too much of me between me and God, and maybe too much of me from between me and life itself. That's why alcoholism sober for a lot of us can be a very lonely business because I'm disconnected because I got too much of me out here between me and life so after making our review we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken and then what? then I go to sleep because the next thing it says is on awakening and there have been a lot of many many nights of uh, where I get to the end of the day and I, I, I go through these questions and I got something stuck. I, you know, I, maybe at work I, I, I went off, I got scared and I went off on one of my employees writing the riot act and I was very abrupt and very harsh with him. And I made him feel very uncomfortable. And I did it behind self-righteousness and, and he was wrong and he was going to ruin everything. And, you know, and there I am at night. There it is. There it is right there. And I ask God what corrective measures should be taken. And I've had this happen where I'll, I'll go to bed and I'll, sometimes I won't even make it till the morning. I'll get up in the middle of the night and the intuitive knowledge of what i got to do is sitting right there in my consciousness. That I got to go to him and, and tell him how sorry I am that I was wrong. That he did not deserve to be treated like that. That I was out of line, and the, the truth was I was afraid. And I will not, and I will try to never treat you like that again. So we ask what corrective measure, and I, I think God cooks stuff out of us. You know, it's like you. you how many times do we don't, we don't know what to do, and if you can just. Be patient. Just don't fight the clock. You know, there's a, a great line in step 11 in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. It says that we do receive guidance and direction in our life just to the extent that we stop demanding it on our time and in our terms. You can't, you can't bum rush God. He works very slow. He's old. I mean, give him a break for God's sakes. He's, he's old. So when I ask what corrective measures should be taken, I go to bed. And a lot of times if there's something that's unresolved, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and there it is. So I consider the plans, my plans for the day. I do this every morning. I block, I block two hours uh, off every single morning. I got to get up. Uh, I, I got to leave tomorrow for the airport at 6 30 so I'm gonna I'm gonna be up probably at four because I got to get myself that two hours that's one of the, I think that's one of the greatest things I do is to set aside the time because it, it prevents me from rushing willfully with angst into my day because I've had a lot of when I ran my company I was so I'd wake up pray quick throw coffee down and run into the day. And I'll tell you, in my experience, I would carry that angst with me into the day. But to give myself a, a long period of time to ease into the day, you carry that into the day. So it's a, it makes a whole, it makes a world of difference. So I'll consider the plans for the day. I did that this morning. I asked God, my, the first prayer, I asked God to Direct my thinking. His will, not mine, be done. Direct my thinking so I can... Because I don't often know what God's will is. I ask Him to direct my thinking. And I ask that it be dis divorced from the three things that will handicap my usefulness today. Self-pity. And, and when you're depressed, 
are full of self-pity. You're not of any use to anyone. It's probably the, one of the greatest handicaps in usefulness is self-pity. So I ask him to divorce my thinking from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. When I'm, when I'm dishonest, I have to maintain a defensive conversation in my head just in case you ask me about what I lied to you about. Right? I have to have a story, I have to have a, a backup story, right? So these are the three things that will, will in, get in the way of my primary purpose of helping others, of, of doing what I decided to head my life in the direction of in step three. The book says, under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Now that's, that's an, if you're new here, that's a novel thought, because it, it became very clear to me after I was sober not very long that my head was my enemy. But it's not really my head that's the enemy. It's the ego that's the enemy, the way it chatters to get me. The way it talks to me. It's, it's the way... I had a guy who I was brand new in sobriety. First six months, probably. And I was, I was nuts. I was having one of those panic days, right? Where you just... I just I'm in my head. I, I'm going to lose my job. And I, people... So much, I don't think these people like me. And, and I'm never going to have anything. And I'm just going to be... God, I'm going to be homeless, sober. And I know it. Oh my God, and I think I have a brain tumor, and oh, just on and on, just crazy, I'm just nuts. I got, I got more, I got bushel of problems. And I told this guy, I just dumped them all on this guy, and he said, so I've never heard this from anyone ever since. He said to me, you think that you are your mind, don't you? You think you're your head. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's my thoughts, my mind. He said, that's not you. No? He said, no, you're the idiot that keeps listening to it. <laughs> and it was like, wow, this is not me? This chattering? It's, it's the first thing that the book talks about on page 55 that blocks me from God. The calamity, the clamor. That's, I am not my head. I am the one that listens to it. I'm the listener. The unopinionated unjudgmental presence that listens. And what my head does is it tries to scare me. You know, Wilson, Wilson was brilliant in step seven when he said that he thought that self-centered fear was the chief activator of all our defects. My, my ego, if, it's, if it wants to take control, it's got to scare me. It, it, it's got to worry me into taking charge. It's got to worry me and scare me into dishonesty. It's got to worry me into selfishness. It's got to worry me to control me. I remember Chamberlain one time, he was at the end of the month meeting, our intergroup meeting, and he, he, God, he, was, he had these laser-like eyes. I remember him, and he looked out over the audience, and he's just, he, he looked at one, at quadrants of the room, he said, what controls you? They look at another quadrant. What controls you? They looked at where I was sitting. What controls you? And I sat there and went, oh, <laughs> I don't know, but I felt like something was. Uh, but I, I wasn't awake enough to even, to even glimpse the, the, the problem. And, you know, God and the ego have certain similarities, one is I've never seen either one of them eyeball to eyeball directly. Yet I have seen their manifestations my whole life. I've seen the manifestation of God as he puts the right person in my path at the right time. As he, as he seems to use the fabric of the universe to line up things so that everything that I need, not everything I want, but everything I need is presented to me. And I see the manifestations of the ego as it, as it chatters at me and scares me and has gotten me to quit jobs based on what it tells me you're thinking about me. As it scares me into taking actions. 
that will, I will later regret. So I see the manifestations. So that God gave us brains to use. If I can clear it of self, if I can disengage myself from the clamor. That's why there's a, a line earlier in the book that's very, I, I really take to heart. It, it says that we found that spiritual principles would solve all our problems. Um, one, one of the things that my sponsor is so good at and, and intuitive, and I guess it, from being 58 years sober and sponsoring half the frickin' planet, that he just, he has this ability to pull the spiritual principle out of the hat that applies to the situation I'm in. He's not trying to run my life, but he's great at pulling, and sometimes it's making amends, sometimes it's, it's changing my attitude, sometimes it's, it's just getting back on track. Just don't, don't pay any attention, just go do your commitments. Go do, go help that person. It's, it's, it's always actions that usually what I'm afraid would not occur to me. Because when I'm afraid, I, I, my, all my actions are self-serving, they're defensive, they're um, self-gratifying usually, self-seeking motives. A couple things that I want to talk about and I'll quit. I think one of the, the great things that Alcoholics Anonymous presents to us is contained in the idea of only and that we pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. That is the, that is the primary uh, suggestion in prayer and meditation, only. And this, I think this differentiates us from a lot of spiritual movements. I, if this, this uh, so tomorrow morning, if you turn the TV on, you'll see many evangelists on television. Some of them are pretty cool. I've, li I've listened to a few of them. There's one guy I kind of like some of the stuff he says. But they all seem to encourage people to pray for specifics that in some sense are self-serving. Pray for abundance. Pray for health. Pray that your kids go get into college. Pray To pray for specifics. And in AA, the suggestion is, don't do that. We know something here from our experience and that we know that God does not need our ideas. We know that God's idea of Bob has been better than Bob's idea of Bob has ever been. That I don't, I don't want what I want, I want what he wants. It, it, the book calls that the proper use of the will. When I align my will with God's, because I want, I've wanted all my life. Half the time he asked me, what do you want? I don't know, I just want more, different, yours, I want, you know, I don't know what I want, I just want, right, and, and so how do you stop wanting, you can't, so I got to want what God wants, it's, it's, a, it's a redirection of the wanter inside of me, to want what he wants, and pray only for knowledge of his will for us, there's so, there's a lot of prayers that we're, that I say, and most people in AA say them, that really are contrary to this. Prayers where we're giving God direction. Prayers where we're telling God to do what to do. You know, when I was a kid, we studied the Ten Commandments. The Second Commandment uh, is that I should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I, I think the vainest use of God's name, the vainest use of prayer, would be to pray for my will. Wouldn't it? I mean, here's, here's the creator of the universe, been running everything for billions of years, but Bob's here now, and God, uh, listen up, because uh, I'm going to give you some orders here, uh, and I'm going to do it, I'm going to say, God, I, I want you, God, grant me, I want you to give me serenity, write that down, God, write serenity, write that down, okay? Uh, and courage, I, write that down, I'm courage, and, and, and hurry up, courage. And wisdom, wisdom. Uh, I'm giving God orders that we, uh, thy will not, that's why I usually quietly to myself after I say the serenity prayer, I'll say thy will not mine be done. 
right, to remind myself that I, I don't really want to give God orders. I, that I, I, I trust what his vision of me is. And that I will, that he can build with me and do with me as he wills. And it'll be good. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be better than anything I could accomplish. To trust God. You know, my friend Mildred uh, from Toronto, she's a, a very bright, bright light in, in AA. To me, and very spiritual and very well read and brilliant. And she said something about, I don't know, two years ago that changed my whole view of prayer. And I'll, I'll end with this. She said if you went back to, into the Hebrew and the pre, pre-Christian version of the Lord's Prayer, and, and I, I just, as I saw that a few years ago, there was a great article in the Grapevine written by a rabbi of Judaism and the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer actually was adopted by Christ, but it, it goes back further. It goes back to pre-Christian times. And she said if you went back to one of the, the versions of, uh, in Hebrew, that the second half of the Lord's Prayer would align more, more perfectly with the first half and with our 11th step. As, as it exists today, it's just our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm praising God and acknowledging him. Um, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there seemed to be a shift where you went from thy will be done to giving God orders. Where you start saying, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Did you write that down, God? Write that. Uh, Forgive us our trifle. And she said that the way it was written back in those days was as an acknowledgement Almost as if it said, you give us this day our daily bread, don't you? And you always have. You forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Thank you. And you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I thought, that's it. I can get behind that because that is is reality to me because God has always given me every day of my life everything I've needed. He's forgiven me completely and absolutely and he's always let tried to lead me to the light even though I may resist the journey. Thank you for listening and uh, I hope you have a nice rest of the day. Thanks.